Welcome to another episode of the Chip and Gary Tennis Show. Uh, today I have a, a really interesting guest and a, and a very uh, successful person. And uh, I tell you, when I was growing up, before I went to college, there was a great uh, college tennis team out on the West Coast, USC, that just had all the players, you know, uh, from way back starting, you know, not starting with Dennis Ralston, but, you know, you can just have a litany of Dennis Ralston, Stan Smith, and so many great players. And in my day, uh, Bruce Manson and Butch Waltz and had so much fun going out to Southern Cal and playing. And I'm interviewing a fellow today that uh, came a little bit after them, but uh, he has later become a a leader in uh, the world of uh, managing CEOs and optimizing businesses and played professional tennis uh, uh, after playing number one for this USC Trojan team. And it's Sean Brawley. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Gary. I'm very happy to be here. I know. We've we've never met, so maybe I'm going to have fun listening to a little bit of your background. Tell us about how you grew up playing tennis and where you're from and, and how it all started for you. Well, I'm happy to. Um, I was born in New Orleans and lived there until I was seven and a half, and my parents moved out with my two brothers to uh, Thousand Oaks, California, and uh, we were literally two blocks away from a tennis swim club. And uh, the first summer that we uh, I was there, I went out with my new best friend Jimmy, and we battled it on the on the back court, number six. Nobody bothered us. Nobody watched us, and and uh, and I actually just learned that way. My dad saw saw took, took, saw me at the end of the summer, and he was absolutely flabbergasted that somehow Jimmy and I had figured out how to play the game. And the truth is, we'd go out and battle, and come back in and watch Laver and Rosewall and. Newcomb, and then go back out, and we didn't know what the heck we we're doing, but we figured it out. <laughs> Thousand Oaks. Now, was were the Cowboys or the Raiders having a ha, had a training camp there in Thousand Oaks? Do you remember? They, they yeah, I, I do remember. They had it at uh, California Lutheran College every summer for like a great number of years. I can't remember when they stopped coming out, but yeah, that was uh, that was a big deal. They'd well, always come out in the summer. Who was the that? The, was that the the Cowboys or the Raiders? The Cowboys. The Cowboys. The ca- the How cow- about that? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so then you got into it with with Jimmy, and then how did it progress? I mean, how did you become the number one you player know, at the Trojans? Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I'm like the cliche of I picked up the racket and just fell in love with tennis. I mean, I just absolutely loved it. I played other sports, was very athletic, but tennis was always my sport. And I, I just slowly moved up in the rankings. I Like in the 12s, I think I was ranked 13. In the 14s, I was 7. In the 16s, uh, I'm talking about in Southern Cal. In the 16s, I had my best year. I was uh, seated third at Kalamazoo and ended up ranked six. And I won the doubles with uh, my partner, David Siegler. Um, ended up getting a full scholarship to SC because of those results, and um, and and really really enjoyed being on the team and and had some 
you know, really good players, some great couple of great players. Robert Vantoff, uh, Matt Anger, both were ranked in the top 25 in the world uh, after college. And, um, yeah, it was great fun. And then I went on the pro tour and was able to play all over the world and got to play in, in the Grand Slams. My highest singles ranking was 143, and my highest doubles ranking was 137. And, uh, was you know, tennis is just been so great um, a big part of my life still in a way is because I still love to play and love I consider myself like a living laboratory I'm still involved in the mental performance and player development in sports and and uh, uh, and I learned to apply those those skills and that knowledge into the corporate world and executive coaching and uh, training and facilitation of leaders and, and managers. You know, that's a you know one of the things about tennis that's just a great thing is the relationships that you build with people. I uh, I was actually roomed with Robert Van Hoff on the college Junior Davis Cup team and and uh, oh. got the chance to play him and Chris Lewis, the other Chris Lewis, who you and I love. Uh, in the NCAAs, playing with Kevin Curran at Texas, and we had a, a great match. And the, the 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 interesting thing I remember about Robert, who went on to win the NCAA singles, I believe the year after Kevin Curran did, two years after this match, uh, because he was a little younger than Chris, was that he he had a little uh, string around the bottom of his uh, racket, like a racquetball racket, and would would. Do that? Did, was he doing that when you were, when you were at SC? Did he still do that, or did he? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, his dad, uh, uh, would you know, would would screw that uh, little rope, uh, wrist, uh, wristlet, or whatever you call it, into the bottom of his racket. Robert sweated a lot, and um, and so he would lose his racket quite a bit, and so that's why he did it, so that. You know, the racket wouldn't go flying out of his hands. <laughs> and he did win the NCAAs. He actually lost all, uh, I mean, he, that was such an unusual year. Robert, like, I don't, I, he didn't win hardly any matches at number one. He lost to Scott McCain and Peter Rennert and, you know, just about everybody. But in the NCAAs, he, uh, Played well, and he played Peter Rennert in the finals. And um, Coach Dick Leach gave him some good strategy. Robert was a backcourt player, and he just said attack all the time, just serve volley, come into the net. Is that and he, right? It really, it really threw Peter off. I think Peter had beaten him three times during the year, but lost in uh, in straight sets of, in the in the finals of the NCAA's. You know, Robert Van Hoff was such a great guy, and, and he went on to coach Lindsey Davenport. And uh, the thing I remember about rooming with him, there were – it may be you California guys, Sean, because when I was at Texas, I roomed with a swimmer my senior year, 
and all he had in his album repertoire were Grateful Dead albums. That was all he had. And likewise, when I roomed with Robert, all he had were Sticks albums, and all he wanted to do was listen to Sticks. I don't know if you remember that or not, but uh, he was a fantastic fellow. You know, there's a lot of guys that were hard guys. I was a little bit of a hard guy, and but Robert Van Hoff was just always the perfect gentleman on the court, off the court, just like Gary Stansberry and so many others. But uh, that must have been a real fun thing. And I guess that uh, the, the great coach, George Tolley, was, uh, was gone and, and, and Dick Leach had come in uh, when you were playing. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, George Tolley uh, retired mid-season my sophomore year, which uh, was... 78, I think, or 9. I guess it would have been 9. Um, uh, yeah, and, and basically hand-selected Dick Leach. Dick, Dick came on board, and we actually... Dick was such a, a strong advocate for doubles and was such a really great doubles coach that uh, he... he uh, he uh, paired us up in a different way than we had been pairing before and uh, practiced doubles quite a bit. And by the end of the season, our doubles record was was quite phenomenal to the point where we won a number of matches when we were down 2-4 in singles and we still were fairly confident that we had a chance to win all three doubles. And um, we ended up number four in the country that year. Um, we lost to Berkeley at uh, the NCAA's after beating them two or three times during the year. Well, that's interesting because, of course, his son Rick Leach became one of the all-time great doubles players in the history of the game, and uh, mm-hmm. and Dick Leach, of course, was you know a, a top ten to top fifteen player in the back in the '60s and also a great player. But um, so, who was your doubles player at the time? Did you change and have different players, different years, or? Uh, the first two years, I played with Jack Kruger, and we both had strong serves, so we were a very strong number three team. And um, my uh, senior year, I played with both Anthony Emerson and Roger Knapp. Boy, that was a. Uh... That was a powerhouse, and and at that time, I guess uh, UCLA, USC, and Stanford uh, were pretty much the better best teams in the country. Pretty much, yeah. Stanford, especially Stanford. Uh, you know, Dick Gould was on his uh, his run of twenty years. I mean, it. I still remember being really shocked. You know, uh, if you if you stand in front of the. Uh, there's a board at, at, at the tennis Stanford tennis facility. Man, you know, Dick Gould, the, the, his teams either won the NCAA championship, came in runner-up, or didn't make the, the, the tournament. But he, he, it's like out of 20 years, you know, some like 17 years, they got to the finals. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, you know, the other interesting thing that I think about Dick Gould is the fact that back in the day when he took over in the early 60s at Stanford, they were not a power, and UCLA and USC, your school with Lutz and Smith and 
all those guys were, you know, were Connors at UCLA. They were winning all the NCAAs. And um, other than the year Trinity won it with Stockton, McKinley, and Gottfried and those guys. But uh, Dick Gould developed that team, and he got Roscoe Tanner and Sandy Mayer in there and, and Rick Fisher and those guys and really developed them into a power because, you know, before we got there in college tennis, they, they were not a power. So uh, it's interesting yeah. because, you know, he wasn't just given players like uh, some of the other schools. Everybody wanted to go to UCLA and UCLA at, at, and USC at the time. But very interesting and probably one of the greatest college coaches I've ever been around. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And you guys had, but then you had uh, Alan Fox over there at Pepperdine that was a top five player in his day. And so well, what was it about the California thing uh, that made it seem to, that you all were so powerful all the time? Well, it's, you know, it's almost like any, if you look at any player development system, so um, it, it really has to do with a couple of things, you know, mostly an environment. So, you know, the top, the top areas of the country typically would turn out um, the most or the best, you know, most of the best players all had, you know, were, were, had good weather. So there was California, uh, there was Texas and Florida. I mean, those are the three powerhouse states that produced not all, but a lot of the, you know, the best tennis players. So that's number one, have good weather. And, and, and then the other is to have good competition. So Boletari, for instance, you know, he perfected the model, which is, you know, if you get like the number one 14 year old in the country and give him a scholarship and he agrees to come, then everyone wants to, you know, play around them. And then by virtue of the fact that the best players are playing um, with each other and, and practicing together, then, you, you know, everybody gets better and pushes each other. So, you know, we had a lot of good players, and the, you know, when, if you became one of the top players of any of those states, um, it usually resulted in being, you know, highly ranked uh, nationally as well. And so, um, and then the other, the other, um, you know, the hard hard court tennis is different uh, substantially from clay court tennis. And I think that um, since the national championships were all on hard court, um, then um, you know the the two most important tournaments were the national hard courts in Burlingame and Kalamazoo, the hard courts at Kalamazoo. So um, yeah, I think the uh, the fast style of play was you know pretty um, pretty um, important. And lastly, for California, you know we had a pretty dedicated player development system that was created from what I understand by Perry Jones, who was like a little mob boss. That's right. <laughs> Perry what, Jones. From, sure. From what I hear. And so, you know, he created at the LA tennis club, just what I'm saying, like he got the best player. So for instance, he, he, you know, invited Jack Kramer to, to 
move from Las Vegas down to L.A. and play at the L.A. Tennis Club in exchange for for uh, lessons and, and you know they, they would he would he got free lessons. And by the way, we mentioned George Tolley earlier, who I just dearly loved and respected as a coach. And I didn't realize until I had read this article that George Tolley was a part of that development brand, Perry Jones's uh, Is development that right? program. <laughs> Yeah, he was the head pro at the LA Tennis Club, and he, you know, was involved in developing a number of juniors, but very quietly. There was never, you know, until he took the. In fact, there was a time when he was both um, the USC head coach and the the, uh, the head pro at the LA Tennis Club, and even when I. Our sophomore year, when Tully was there, every Friday we'd go over to the L.A. Tennis Club and practice, which was a lot of fun. Wow. Well, yeah, he was a, he was a legendary coach. And actually, I've, I'm kind of a historian. I have some of these American lawn tennises even before the world tennises. And he was actually a player as well, as, as Glenn Bassett was. And uh, that's very interesting. And then you kind of... Uh, you kind of segued into being a personal assistant for the fellow that's now the uh, Seattle Seahawks football coach and USC great coach Pete Carroll, didn't you? I did, yes. Uh, and and if we fill in the blank of how that's possible that a tennis former tennis pro might, yeah, you know, have something to say to Pete Carroll and help the USC football team when I got off the tour I went into business for about six years Gary and didn't like it so I got back into tennis as a coach and was very happy but and and within just a couple of months I ended up meeting Tim Galway who um, had wrote the classic the inner game of tennis and the other inner game books it's uh, the inner game of tennis is um, like 45 years old this year it's uh, the number one tennis book of all time. It's usually number one, unless like Sampras or Agassi or somebody writes a biography. Um, it's it still sells twenty, thirty thousand copies every single year, and it's uh, it's been regarded as um, one of the first sports psychology books ever written. And to this day, it's it's probably the most popular. And, you know, Galway, um, I, was, I just was very fortunate that Galway agreed to mentor me uh, for over five years. We, um, and we became quite good friends, and, and he and I would do projects. And I did a number, I numerous inner game of tennis, and then I, I actually, because basically what I learned was, you know, how do human beings learn and perform optimally, and how how do they get in their own way? We all get in our own way. And so, you know, as part of the coaching, isn't just giving instructions and, 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 you know, technical instructions and advice. It's if you understand that, that fear and doubt and limiting beliefs can interfere with learning and performance, then, you know, it's it's quite helpful. So he really introduced me to an approach that I think is um, is very was very simple and yet very powerful, and it, it allowed me to understand um, how to coach people optimally, and not just in tennis. I'd never played golf before, but I started giving 
inner game of golf clinics and workshop and lessons at my tennis and golf club. And I just kept transferring my skills to other sports. So, you know, Pete Carroll thought that the inner game uh, uh, was the foundation of his coaching philosophy and, um, and but didn't know how. And so he had gotten fired from the Jets, New York Jets and the New England Patriots, woke up one day and with an epiphany and, and realized, oh my God, I don't know why I got fired. So he hired me to be his coach advisor to help him flush out like his, his coaching philosophy and how the inner game you know, may have played a, a part in that. And so that's what I did for nine months prior to him getting the job at SC. And then it was, of course, pretty natural. I'm just 20 minutes away where I was living in the Pacific Palisades. So when he got named head coach, I started, I would do something for the coaching staff each year and worked with a lot of the players that everybody's familiar with, you know, who would have performance problems, mental performance problems like um, Reggie Bush and Carson Palmer. And and I, I worked pretty regularly with the um the special teams, the kickers, the punters, and the special teams. Well, that's really interesting because, um, you know, when you think about a football coach hiring a tennis player to <laughs> talk to you about how to be a better t- a football coach or uh, working with these players to have the confidence to do that. But uh, Timothy Galway, in his book, you know, broke it down very simply, like you said, into self one and self two, if I'm not mistaken. And can you explain what that means to an athlete? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the Tim, Tim um, basically had a very simple framework that now, you know, many years later, others have used and might be familiar with to people listening. Um, and that is, is, you know, we all have a great amount of potential that we find hard to express because we get in our own way. So there's a simple formula. Performance equals potential minus interference. So if we, if we look at that formula, again, it's performance equals potential or talent minus interference. So if we look at that, we can see that there's two pathways for improving performance. One is developing potential, and the other is learning how to uh, reduce the self-interference. And if we reduce self-interference, if we overcome the inner obstacles of fear and doubt that, by the way, you know, we all have it. And one of the things that I think is so critical to understand is, you know, that it affects every single person on the planet and it's a, it, the inner game is something that's been going on for thousands of years. We saw it firsthand at, during the Wimbledon final when Federer, you know, had aced Djokovic, was up 40-15, 8-7 in the fifth, and completely choked. Um, got so tight he could barely hit the ball in. And so it doesn't matter... Um, how good you are, what you've accomplished, you know, when you're put in a certain situation that you deem is important to you, it's possible to get quite nervous. And, and so, if we, but if we can learn to um, reduce the interference, we get immediate impact and performance. And so Galway, um, you know, again, basically 
tapped into the power of having students remain responsible for their learning and teach them how to get feedback from their own experience because experience is the best teacher and that uh, simple awareness can actually be curative which is very hard for a lot of coaches to understand and believe if they've never, you know, used it. But just helping somebody become more aware of what they're doing leads typically to natural change and effortless change. And it's, it's a, even to this day, it's a wonder, wonderful thing to observe. And I'm constantly in awe of that process. Well, that's interesting when you, you listen to you talk about Roger Federer who's had 20 grand slams and that he chokes. I remember McEnroe saying he choked against Lendl in the French Open finals, you know, and said everybody's going to do it. And so I guess that's the conundrum. If you see somebody that's that great that's going to choke, that it's kind of an inherent uh, fear that I guess man has. And how do you overcome that? Is that what you're trying to get to yeah yeah and and the thing is that i found in just about every sport is we don't train it like we don't like what i've noticed in american tennis for instance and a lot of the high performance academies that i've consulted for over the years you know they 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 often um drill and train and you know it's it's they're trying to maximize the number of players on the court leaving very little time to actually play points and compete and even if they do so if the next step is they actually do provide those opportunities um there's no bridge you know there's like Uh i mean one of the reasons why the, the number one question of every single sports institution on the planet, we're talking about all Olympic sports, tennis, you know, like I, I worked with the USTA development um, program for a little bit, and everybody has, every, well, it, there's one question that everybody wants to find the answer to is, how can I help my athletes or players play perform as well in competition as they do in practice and part of the thing is we don't we don't train and give them a bridge it's either they compete in a tournament or they like you know play points but nobody knows how to step up pressure to to help uh and and a process to help uh, players become aware of when they're tight and and nervous and and, uh, and and struggling to you know play let's say normal and um, and and then keeping that relaxed focus in competition that actually was something that Pete Carroll understood very well and, and from a team perspective he did an incredible job and it was something really to to watch how he would prepare his players um, really important games and basically tell them don't play your best yeah that that's that's very interesting you know I found I'm trying personally now to I've decided that I want to be a serve coach because I was you don't really never saw me play Sean but I was five foot eight and flat-footed and not really a, a really fast guy or anything but yet I 
I played number one at Texas. I had a Kevin Kern. I had a Steve Denton and would win those challenge matches and, you know, and had a high percentage win uh, in college at number one all four years uh, because of my serve. And, you know, it wasn't that... It, it just changed my whole mentality. Once I had a confident serve and a second serve, you know, I was ready to attack. And even though I might not be, a, you know, whether it's a slow court and I'm staying back or something, that confidence really was something that helped me not choke. Another thing that helped me not choke as much is I just, I just made believe I wasn't even playing the match. I started singing songs in my head and just playing instinctively trying to, you know, kind of model what uh, Galway was saying is, you know, just not even, you know, uh, not even acknowledge the importance or, or importance that you think it had to, to play. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, basically there are some, some pretty consistent ways that everybody gets in their own way. Um, you know, fear is obviously a, a big one, fear of winning. You know, Jimmy Connors called it kissing the trophy. You know, um, you know, you, you imagine that you've won already before you've won and then you get nervous because you haven't actually won yet. Fear of losing. There's a, The laundry list is pretty uh, long, but there are some key ones. So thinking too much. So a lot of, especially rec players, um, will be in their heads and be talking to themselves um, uh, while they're trying to hit instead of, like you said, playing intuitively. So, so for instance, the famous exercise bounce hit, um, uh, you know, helps to diminish uh, the, the, the chatter in the head of the monkey mind. Singing song, that's something that it, you can do. Like if you're singing a song while you're hitting, then you know, you're basically occupying the thinking part of the brain that normally might get in the way. Um, Self-judgment is pretty big because if you keep judging yourself and beating yourself up, then you basically um, uh, create an inner environment or mood that is not uh, conducive for uh, high performance. It's like the opposite of confidence. So, you know, there's, there's, so, like, again, when I inter- I interviewed uh, Roger Federer for, uh, on the mental side of the game um, two and a half years ago for a project um, for Wilson Tennis, and one of the things that he said, you know, and he, and he said this a million times, but you know, he probably wouldn't be the champion he was today, but he was very angry junior player, and it wasn't until he realized that his anger was getting in the way that he really concentrated and did something about that. And he got control of his temper. And by getting control of the temper, um, he was able to you know, go to the next level. And that's essentially the inner game in a nutshell. It's how do you get in your own way and then recognizing the consequences and the impact of that and then embarking on a journey of self-discovery to um to you know overcome that well you know it's interesting to me with with your life how how the tennis has affected what you've done 
uh, now because you know I noticed that you've you've worked with in player development for the New York Yankees for many years uh, with with some of their people in IT and T Union Bank a lot of uh, you know Dave and Buster's big corporate entities uh, how does that transfer into working with CEOs or are they like playing a tennis match as well yeah it's um, it's there's there's you know, the context is different but the way we get in our own way is pretty much the same that's one of the things that was so fascinating when I started working in the corporate world and assumed that it would be you know quite different but of course that was silly because you know it doesn't matter what sport and it doesn't matter what you know business it is we the reason I can coach in in other sports and in uh, in the corporate world with leaders and executives is precisely because what I, I've that getting back to the formula I have learned um, effective ways to develop people and their talents and I understand and can assess how they're getting in their own way and have conversations with them about it and um, and help them overcome the inner obstacles to achieving their goals. Um, with corporate executives, for instance, um, they, um, it, you know, focus is critical, whether it's focusing on a tennis ball or focusing on the most critical business driver um, for success in, in, in whatever business it is. And leaders get distracted all the time. They forget, There's, they be, their, life, their schedule becomes so busy. So like that's just one example how, you know, if, if my student is so worried about missing the ball and thinking to themselves, um, they're not gonna watch the ball as well as they could be. So if I can switch their attention to the aspects of the ball that are interesting, like the spin, speed, height, or location that it's bouncing, it quiets the mind and helps them get high quality relevant information about the ball. That's true about anything. I use the tennis ball as an analogy all the time. Like I did a TED talk a TEDx talk, and I used you know a tennis, the tennis ball as an analogy for the power of focus. Yeah, I, I, I saw that TED talk, and that was very interesting because it took me back to reading Match Play and the Spin of the Ball by Bill Tilden, and who, which was written in the 20s, and he talked about the fact that the ball will obey you and whatever you do to the ball, and it was the same thing. You hit it inside, you can hit the inside out forehand. You hit the outside, you can hit the sharp angle. But what I learned that really helped me is that if I watch the part of the ball that I was trying to hit, and I don't know if this has any relevance to the TED Talk that you were talking about, but that I watched the ball better because not only was I watching the ball, but I was watching the part of the ball that I was hitting and uh, you know that's why I had some interest when I, I saw that talk and you know it's kind of interesting when you're in a corporate setting like that and I got a big kick out of the fact that you had a tennis racket and a tennis ball there. Yeah. Yeah, that's my. Uh, those are my props. I take them everywhere. <laughs> do you? So you do you use those in most of your talks uh, to the tennis analogy? Oh yeah. Is oh yeah. A, it's a great. It, you know, it it really helps. I, I, I really believe in experience being the best teacher. So as much as I can, 
Uh, I try to have have my talks and presentations be very interactive and experiential. So, you know, if they're if they're following the ball, you know, and I have them say bounce when the ball bounces on the ground and hit when the ball hits my racket, they immediately become more alert. And that that alertness has a has a a state and an energy quality to it that I think is helpful for them to to understand in the moment, like this is what focus is and you've chosen to focus on the ball and we we do have some measure of control of our attention. And um, for anybody listening who was interested in this topic, Daniel Goldman, who's the author of Emotional Intelligence, which sold somewhere around 20 million copies over the last 25 years, um, wrote a book that came out four years ago called Focus, The Hidden Driver of Excellence. And what he said was, the research is quite clear now that the ability to control your attention and focus on what's most important is the foundation for sustainable high performance, for optimal learning, and to his surprise, trusting meaningful relationships because it is the foundation for empathy and emotional intelligence. Um, so it's, it's pretty important to understand, you know, given that, it's helpful to understand some things about our focus, how it works, and how to direct it. Um, and so that's essentially what I you know, have learned myself and, learn, and help my students or my clients you know, first understand that it's really first and foremost about um, controlling your attention uh, because when you control your attention, that's, that's everything. In yeah. fact, uh, uh, his name, uh, Phil Jackson, wrote a book called Sacred Hoops, and that's exact, that, that's exact quote for him, is uh, focus is everything. Well, that's interesting because I know he was into Zen, and so it kind of coincides with... Uh with that, yeah. you know, from the mental Bill state. Gates. Yeah, here's another. Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett, um, also both of them were asked, what's the number one reason, mo- you know, reason why you were successful? And Bill Gates said focus, and Warren Buffett said totally agree. Hmm. And there's a, three, a do- three, there's a three-part documentary on Netflix now on Bill Gates. You can see it. He I've watched absolute- it. I've watched the first one. It's beautiful. Absolutely, relentlessly focused on his on what he was interested in. It, it's really amazing, actually. It, it is amazing how he'll take a week off and go to his cottage and just have his little big bag of books, and he just gets into his books and focuses, and he's away from his wife and just doing his own thing. So, so Sean, you you know, it's interesting how you've actually had some transference here from the tennis game into the corporate game and so now you're dealing with a lot of corporate CEOs and and and, and trying to accentuate their businesses um, what if what if I'm a what if I'm a business owner and I wanted some some advice what are you doing now are you are you doing that type of thing where you're talking to going and contracting with companies and working with their employees I- I am. I am. I had uh, I, I, I had my own business for nearly twenty years, um, and and I, part of part of what my um, programs that I offered was a uh, coaching for performance 
training program for leaders and um, and managers, as well as my executive coaching services. And I last year I um, received an offer from a company called Spencer Stewart, which is one of the largest executive search firms in the world, and they have a, a rapidly growing leadership advisory service practice as part of that. And they purchased my coaching company last year, and so I've been working with for them since then. And it's been great. They're a great company. I do indeed uh, work with CEOs, um, and I coach them and help them with um, transition support, succession planning, um, and, and of course, uh, coaching. Um, and and especially helping them uh, understand how how to get the best out of their teams. So it's, in the corporate world, that's we they call it top team effectiveness. So, yeah, that's what we're doing, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of geared to uh, really lean towards the corporate thing the last. Uh, four or five years and it, you know, it ended up paying off. I'm very happy and love what I do. You know, my uh, doubles partner from the U S open once told me, um, uh, you'll never find anything that you'll like better than tennis, you know, to make a living. And I said, well, I, I so I feel pretty lucky cause I, I really love what I do. And it's, uh, who was that? Doubles? Who was that? Doubles really interesting. Who, who is that doubles partner? Uh, Howard Sands. Howard Sands, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, thanks for your time. I appreciate you taking your time out. And if any any anybody's listening that's a CEO or running a company and wanted a little help, uh, they just need to remember to call Sean Brawley at uh, Spencer Stewart. And you're in Stamford, Connecticut, correct? I am indeed. So Gary, California boy, the, California boy that went to the other coast. Yeah. Sean, thanks for your time today. That was really interesting. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you.